Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's another stellar edition of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. And I'm your host in New London, Connecticut, Carl Franklin. And just back from a whirlwind tour of uh, the United States, Mark Dunn in Atlanta, Georgia. How are you tonight, Mark? Hoo-ha, Carl. I am doing fabulous. Glad to be here. Glad to be home. And uh, Whirlwind Tour is right. Uh, I got back from Microsoft uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm taking this week off. Very cool. Now, how many weeks in a row have you been teaching now? I had taught ten classes in a row. Jeez. So now you're sort of... <gasps> yeah, I need, I, need a, I need a break. Got to catch my second wind. So uh, I'm about to uh, to engage uh, a contract with a friend down in Birmingham uh, to help him out with uh, some architecture on a product that he's writing. Cool. So uh, that's going to be kind of a nice departure from doing training all the time. Yeah, you've really recently gotten into architecture consulting. That sort of seems to be your area of focus lately. Yeah, that's right. I've uh, been doing some mentoring for uh, some local companies, and that, that's worked out very well. That's great. Well, folks, uh, call Mark if you need help with your architecture. So uh, what a great show that was with Bill again last week, huh? Oh, Bill is always a hoot. <laughs> He's a riot. Smart guy, He's too. wild Bill Vaughn. Yeah, I remember uh, seeing him way back in the early days. I guess, you know, when RDO came out, he was just ecstatic over, you know, DAO. And he's always sort of hated Jet, so it was funny to see him up there on the stage just bashing stuff left and right and everybody cheering. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he was probably driving a horse and buggy back then. Uh, RDO goes back a while. That's right, yeah. It's true. But it certainly was was a departure. You know, when people finally realized that they couldn't load 10,000 megabytes of data in a single query, give it all to the user, and let them sort through it anymore. It just doesn't work. That's not a good idea anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, we want small chunks of data, not big chunks. So uh, just as an aside here, I'm, we're, we're taping on, we usually tape on Wednesday nights, but uh, we're taping on a Tuesday night this week. We have... Uh, Speaking at the Boston.net users group tomorrow night, and uh, so I can't make it. But uh, on Tuesday nights, right across the street here is an AA meeting. And, uh, it, you know, it started out very small, just a few people going to it every once in a while. And, and what they do is, before the meeting, they stand outside on the street, right in the driveway of my building here, and they sort of congregate and smoke cigarettes and talk and stuff. You run and- into any Java developers? Um, <laughs> <after>? <laughs> And, uh, well, anyway, they, uh, so, so they've been growing in numbers. And when I came in tonight, you know, to record, they were just, they were, they were cranking boom boxes, just having like a carnival in the street out there, you know, clanking on tambourines and smoking butts and slapping high fives. And just, it took me like five minutes just to get through the driveway. I just had to like, you know, make swimming motions with my, with my hands to get them out of the way so I could get in the driveway. So, um, but they seem to have all cleared out now, so I don't think we'll have any unexpected noise. But, uh, I was afraid there for a minute. <laughs> We're gonna, I'm gonna have some car horns and other things in the background. <laughs> Got a wild AA meeting out in the parking lot. Yep, yep. Well, anyway, uh, our guest tonight is the, one of the regional directors. There are two of them for the New York metropolitan area. And, uh, as you know, 
the Microsoft regional directors are a uh, loosely knit extranet of experts all around the world that represent their local development communities to Microsoft and vice versa. And uh, Stephen Forte is with us from New York City. Andrew Brust is his uh, counterpart over there. They cover together a large area, including New Jersey and uh, southwestern Connecticut. Stephen, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. How you guys doing? We're doing fine. I forgot awesome, to Steve. I forgot to mention that you're the uh, C- CTO and the co-founder of Corizon, a uh, which is an in, in and of itself a .NET success story, and um, as well as being the regional director. I guess that's what you do for for real, right? That's my day job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did you arrive at the name uh, Corizon? Well, the name Corazon is actually pretty interesting because it was a, do- a domain name that was open, that was short, and two syllables. Hey, you can't beat that. Can't beat that. I was thinking it was a planet in one of the uh, the Star Wars movies, but that was Corazon. Corazon. It very well could be. We just discovered that a Belgian beer is called Corazondorf, and we were very excited about that and bought a case of it to celebrate um, some of our recent customer acquisitions. So. Hey, well, you can't go wrong with that. Exactly. Yeah. So you got any left? Um, actually, I think there's about two or three bottles left out in the office. So. I'll save me one so when I come down there. Next time you're in New York, you can definitely have one. What's your yeah, relationship yeah. with the users group down there? Okay, there is a um, a user group that's about a year old, the New York City .NET developers group, and I am the, um, the co-founder and the co-moderator, uh, Andrew, myself, and another individual named Bill Zach, who's um, very involved with the community, uh, formed this user group. And it's a, a great user group. We get over 100 folks. We meet the local Microsoft office, and we have excellent speakers. Chris Kinsman is speaking next week on the yeah, 20th. Yeah, great. Yeah. And I think, uh, Carl, you're speaking in July or August. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I, I basically, my role in the user group, besides being one of the moderators, is to help acquire the speakers, and um, I run the list server. We have probably about 500 or so names on our list server that we you know, blast out to. If for some strange reason people as far away as Australia join our list server, and I'm not sure why. Huh, well, so are you guys an Ineta group? Uh, yes, we are. We've been involved with Ineta pretty much since the beginning of Ineta, and um, Ineta has been a, a great organization. They, they've um, supplied us with speakers. I believe Chris is coming as an Ineta speaker right. in, a week, in a week from tomorrow, a week from Thursday. So for those who don't know what Ineta is, that's what is the International .NET Users Group Association of some kind. Yeah, and what I does believe. It stand for? Yeah, I believe Ineta has um, has a bunch of sponsors, Microsoft being one of them, but not the only. So it's not a Microsoft organization at all. Right. And what they basically will do is they provide support. So it's mostly almost exclusively volunteer based, which I was very surprised. Yeah. When I started crawling my way through the bureaucracy of Ineta, and I don't use bureaucracy as a bad word. It's actually very it's very easy to get get through the. Um, the information there, and most of the folks are um, volunteers. I just volunteered and spoke at the Vermont at the Vermont.net users group, and uh, Julie Lehman, the um, president of that group, is a is a big time person at in Ineta, so I right. got to know her well through Ineta. So they're a great organization. It's um, they provide pizza when you have a speaker from Ineta, and they they'll even pay for the, they're flying in Ken Getz all the way from Los Angeles. That's they're right. They're paying they, his airfare and hotel to come speak at our New York users group. So yeah, they're they're setting up a, a tour for uh, Don Box, I think, aren't they? I believe you're right. I'm not 100% sure of the details. Yeah, so check your local user group. Uh, if if you're listening to this uh, show and you're not at a .NET user group and you're using .NET, 
something wrong with you, son. Yeah, there definitely uh, is. A, there, there definitely is no excuse not to be a member of a user group. You, you know, and you get free pizza, and you occasionally win a raffle, and you might get some games or an Xbox or something. So that's definitely. A good thing. It's all about the community experience, though. I believe. Right. You know, I I've been I started a user group. You know, way back in my early days of a VB and Access programmer about eight or nine years ago, I started a New York City Access and VB user group, and I've met folks that have been, you know, I've hired folks out of the group, I've yeah. gotten work out of the group, I've made just good personal relationships, good friends from the user group. I mean, friends, guys who have, you know, been to my wedding and everything. I mean, you know, great folks at these user groups. One of my, one of my really close friends I met at the user group. So it's, it's a social. It's difficult to find, I think, peers in this group if you're not geographically close to other programmers um, just because there there really aren't a lot of people that understand what we do and that we can have a conversation with that means anything, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, even in a city as large as New York, there is, I mean, there is a community here. I mean, I'm not going to try to fool you guys, but a city as large as New York, you know, it's big, it's impersonal, and, you know, there's so many people doing so many different things. There's so many other industries in New York, even though the programming population here is huge. I mean, it's probably one of the largest in the world. There still is, it's still hard to find that community aspect. And yeah. one of the only places I get it, besides at my office, is at the user group. Hmm. How large is the user group? We have about 400 members and 450 last time I checked, but that translates to about 100 and 125 consistently at a meeting. So we really have about 100 repeat customers, so to speak, every month. And then we, you know, give or take another 25 with walk ins and telling a friend and, and that type of stuff. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So we have uh, we want to talk about your uh, .NET success stories here in uh, one of the most widely read publications in New York City is the Zagat catalog of restaurants, and uh, you had something to do with their website, did you not? Uh, yes, I did. Um, about three years ago, in late 1999, I was um, hired at Zagat Survey. It's not you guys all out there in Radio Land might know it as Zagats or Zagat or Zagat. It's actually it was founded by a an, a couple, and their name is Tim and Nina Zagat. And having worked for them for two and a half years, um, I learned how to pronounce their name properly. So oh, okay. It is Zagat rhymes with cat Z A G A T, and it's um it's it's actually interesting. It's a offline and online venture. It's been around for about 25 years, so obviously it was offline first. And mm -hmm. the book, their little red restaurant book called The Zagat Restaurant Guide, sells more books in New York City than any other book, even more than the Bible, yep. which is a little scary when you think about it. But <laughs> <laughs> you got to eat. I, mean, you I guess you have to eat. You don't have to go to church, but you do have to eat. I, I first saw that catalog when I was doing some consulting for a studio in New York City a few years back, and uh, there was a, a great, what was it? It was a... It was a Spanish and Chinese restaurant, which is an uh, unbelievable combination. And very and they, interesting. And they delivered, of course, till three in the morning, which is amazing. You can just to call someone at three in the morning and say, "Send over an order of Peruvian chicken," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Twenty minutes later, ding dong, there's a guy at your front door. That's great. Uh, yeah, just a great town. Anyway, uh, that was the first time I saw them. The second time I heard of them was uh, on Chris Farley uh, on Saturday Night Live did a thing with Adam Sandler, where Chris Farley was in drag playing this, uh, you know, housewife, and Adam Sandler was the drunk husband, and she was reading from the Zagat's catalog. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> and, and here's a good one. And he would read the description and then go, <laughs> and Adam Sandler would say stuff like, 
Shoot me now! I'm in the middle of a moron sandwich! <laughs> anyway. <Yeah. laughs> it was really fun working there because um, the public relations department would always find those and circulate them around the office. So, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge company, about a hundred people. And, you know, so we all knew each other well. And so when somebody discovered one, they would forward it to the whole company, to everybody. And uh, uh-huh. there was a website that parodied like, you know, like life and, you know, so Gat has the ratings and they would, you know, say, you know, never should have gotten out of the womb would be maybe the little write up and hmm. lots of funny things. Yeah, it was, it was a <laughs> lot of fun. That's cool. So what was, what did their website entail? I guess it was the website you were doing for them? Well, I was actually the chief technology officer. So, um, you know, it's funny when you say CTO, a lot of people don't know what that means. So I would say, well, I'm responsible for everything that plugs into the wall. And so we, we did a lot of interesting things there. I mean, from a Great Plains implementation to um, building a WinForms application as a .NET early adopter hmm. to building an ASP Classic website, which you know at, at its height would get, you know, the dot-com era got millions of hits a day. And... Um, hmm. What I find real interesting is the, um, the work that we did, we built a content management system that's, um, they're finally seeing the fruits of that labor today. And, um, it really started as a .NET project about a year before .NET shipped and, um, great success with it. I mean, we learned a lot about .NET along the way. You were a true early adopter then. We absolutely were. And at some points, I mean, we made some mistakes. Um, we basically, wrote a whole data access layer that was probably a good, I'm going to guess, maybe one full developer month that if we would have noted that, you know, the data set dot is nested equals true, we didn't need. Oh, man. So we've made some, I mean, we definitely lost some time and made some mistakes, but even losing a little bit of time, which was our fault, we gained a phenomenal advantage over dot, by using dot net. And part of it was, the product that we were building was so big, so complex. It needed design patterns. It, you know, it really needed an object-oriented approach. Yep. And I had a whole bunch of VB and ASP and Access developers on staff. So I could have went out and taught them all. I could have fired them all and got Java programmers. I could have fired them all and gotten C++ programmers. Or I could have trained them all in C++. Or I could have been a .NET early adopter and used you know, C Sharp or VB.NET, um, which we did. You know, we actually, that project was all in VB.NET. So wow. They were able to come up to speed with the design patterns and everything fairly quickly and um, get this project out the door. I mean, like any so this was, project. Sorry, this was a Windows Forms project? This is a Windows Forms project, yeah. What was the nature of it? What did it do? It basically um, collected data. You know, so the, if, if for those of you out there are familiar with the Zagat surveys, it's basically, you know, I would say a content management system, but a surveying management system. We'd get data elements to create a survey, you know, pump out a survey that went to our website. When the survey results come in, tabulate the scores, and then let the editors edit the reviews and scores, and then distribute the information with output. You know, wow. we would send it out as XML in our output, and, and we had various formats of our output. One would be a book. We integrate it with um, FrameMaker. Um, I forget who makes it. I think Adobe makes it. Yeah, I think so. With Adobe FrameMaker. So we integrated with uh, our VB.net with Adobe FrameMaker. It also, you know, glorify DTS out to the web. So, you know, the web was one of the formats. And um, they're doing lots of interesting... I mean, I've, I've been out of there over a year, but they're doing... I'm very proud of them. They're doing wonderful, interesting things with it now. They're, you know, wireless and pocket PC at platforms, and they're doing different types of books. So it, it enabled the company to expand out of the restaurant world. And I'm holding in my hand right now a shopping guide. as a Gat shopping guide. They have nightlife books and hotel books and shopping books, you know, that... 
use the same kind of MO as the restaurant book. So they're, you know, piggybacking off that restaurant success and the technology is really making it happen. So it's. When you mentioned DTS, I heard Mark's eyebrows go up. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, DTS is cool. So what, what were you doing with DTS? Oh, we had a structure where we had a, you know, highly transactional, super codified database. And that particular database was our production database, which produced the book and stored all this content. And, and our content manager system was then hierarchical in nature because it was element and attribute based. And we had a website and we can kind of talk a little bit about the Zagat.com website because I'm a big fan and of, of letting Dr. Cod not come to the web. Dr. Cod, you know, <laughs> Dr. Cod had his time and that's for your nice client server OLTP applications yeah. but on the web. If you have content that is relatively static, you basically need to publish lots of repeating information yeah. and minimize joins and minimize lookups and et cetera, et cetera. So data set cache. Exactly. And that is what we did. And I, I pushed that through. My developers resisted me. And I took that, I took that model and brought it to Corzin. And my developers didn't resist me because, well, they, they saw the success of Zagat, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. Zagat.com, which was built in ASP Classic, it took about... Um, you know, it's a huge website. It took about seven people. I'd say about four developers and two testers and, and a manager. It took about five months to build. And when it was done, we gained about, you know, a thousand percent performance increase over a previous site, which used Java and, um, you know, basically about 13 Java objects and then an ASP layer on top of that. Yeah. And um, it was a lot of fun building it. But I think what's interesting is... Um, what we did with our DTS packages, we pushed millions and millions of repeated information to the website. So every page you would go to on that website pretty much had a table. So every type of query you could run had its own table. And that worked real well because users didn't update that information. The information that the users updated was in a separate database. Right. And that was transactional, and Dr. Cod was allowed in that particular database. He just wasn't allowed on our content <laughs> published database. So I took that forward with Corzin. And... Um, Corzin has actually done all with .NET, and I, a lot of the lessons that I learned at Zagat after I, you know, from my years there, I took there. And what's interesting is we did that, obviously, this was, um, we built it, started last April, and it took three people, which was basically one developer, one manager slash developer, one tester, and the tester huh. was part-time, and it took us two months to build. Ugh. And it's a site almost as large as a get. I would say just about as large as a get. When it, Jeez, comes, that's when it comes to database side, it, it's as many database queries and storage procedures and objects. It's maybe about 5% less pages. But oh, What a testament to .NET. I think you're absolutely correct. And this Man. is why I've been such a fan of .NET. And I say, you know, people go, oh, you're a Microsoft guy. And you know, I've actually... And have not been a Microsoft guy my whole program experience. I mean, I started off coding in Java when I... You know, when I got into Wall Street and did other things. So, I mean, I, I've experienced the other side. And I really have to say, you know, it's a GAT. We had a very cheap website. I'd say saved over a million dollars than going the Oracle Java route and had a tremendous performance increase. And then going from ASP Classic to ASP.net, you know, from Zagat to, um, you know, Corzin, it only took us about two months with, with um, half the amount of people. So it really, it really is a testament. And, yeah, you know, I think I think of the things that are kind of like really saved us the time. And I think the number one thing was we're using a compiled language, right? We're, you know, we're we're using a true, you know, VB.net or C sharp. We're using a true language, of course, and we're not using a scripting language. 
And that's not really kind of spoken about that much in the Microsoft circles and the marketing literature and, and test, even, in the, even in the testimonials. That's not really spoken about that much hmm. by developers. But I think that was the number one performance gain. And then obviously the, you know, the other great things that we did was, you know, we, um, you know, we use things like fragmented caching and, um, you know, making our own user controls. I mean, you couldn't really do, you couldn't make a user control in ASP Classic. You can do server-side includes. Includes, right. right. You know, it's a gap. We had at one point, we had like four layers of includes on one page. And I'm like, this has got to stop. And it was a very well-architected site. My architects did a fabulous job. But I mean, that was the technology at the time. Right. And four layers of includes just gave, you know, I took pause at that. And, um, you know, now we have these, um, you know, comparing it now two years later at Corzin, we have, you know, user controls all over the place, reusing code, you know, using an interface um, to do a download procedure where um, in the past, if it wasn't object-oriented and it wasn't .NET, you'd have like one big ugly object. And every time we added a page to the site, we'd have to add a property and a method to this object. Now we use an interface and right. each web page implements that interface. So there's, you know, one of my Sweet. developers came up with that. It was fabulous. So let me just, uh, let me just get this right. So your, your Zagat site, how long did that take to build? And that was... That was five months of development effort, and it was seven people. It was four developers and um, a manager and a tester. And you built the same scale of a site for Corzin with really one developer. Pretty much one to one and a half developers, yeah. One to one and a half in a month. In two months. Two, two months. months. Mm-hmm. And that's not so what are people doing here with Java and jerking around with all this other stuff? Why don't, what is, why don't the results speak for themselves? Don't people want to save time and money? Yeah, and I, I look at the things about that, what we got from .NET. I mean, a simple concept like forms authentication, that takes a week off your development cycle. Right. Oh, yeah. Of any project. So you're you don't doing. have to plug holes in your security model constantly. Be- exactly, because it is just built in. Um, view right. state. Okay, right. We, I mean, we'll talk about some of the server controls that we use, you know, but, you know. Why don't we some, explain a little bit about what those things are to the listener who doesn't know? Sure thing. Uh, forms authentication is a built-in security mechanism that allows a um, ASP.NET developer to just choose the type of security they want declaratively in a configuration file, and it pretty much just works. So you can choose your challenge response type security. You can use Windows security, or you can use what's called forms authentication, which basically is you tell a configuration file, go to this form when a user needs to log in. And you can set your whole site to be password protected or only portions of your site at a directory level. So we have two or three directories that are protected and the rest of the site is free. So you can go to Corzin.com and browse around and see the top level stuff. But when you get into the hardcore stuff, which was built with .NET, it's all in a protected directory. So the idea is you don't have to check with an include at the top of every page, you know, is this person logged in? Exactly. If not, reroute them to the login page. Um, there's a benefit here. Because if you forget, you know, not only you've got a security hole. But developers now don't have to worry about security, which is great because developers don't always think about security. Yeah, they and hate how security. security holes get built in. Yep. But another piece of this equation is a developer... If we want to make a page, a pa- our site is a subscription model where we sell, we basically, um, we gather data from a variety of places and we aggregate it, we data warehouse it, and then we distribute it with our .NET app. And um, what will happen is if we want to put a particular page, we want to make it a um, free page, I just remove it from a directory that's protected and change the URL that mm. links to it. 
mm-hmm. or if I want to make a certain bounce, if I want to make a certain group of pages free for let's say 30 days, I can just change my config file for that particular directory. Right. So it's it's declarative security, and um, it works and it yeah. works well. Yeah, yeah, that it does. Uh, listen, if you guys want to hang on a second, we'll take a few minutes and pay the bills. Hey, are you an out-of-work VB developer looking to sharpen your skills any way you can? Trying to pinch as many pennies as possible? Maybe you considered our VBNet Masterclass but passed it up because it was too pricey. But we're going to offer you a .NET Rocks April Bad Economy Special for our April class. That's April 7th through the 11th. We're offering unemployed VB developers a seat in our class for half price. That's right, 1000 bucks. That includes five great lunches. All you got to do is get here to New London, Connecticut. Interested? Can you prove to us that you're unemployed? All right, well, then call Todd Follinsby in our sales office toll-free at 877-273-4838 if you're interested in attending the FranklinsNet VBNet Masterclass April 7th through 11th in New London, Connecticut for half price. Only for the unemployed, however. Uh, keep your keep your chin up. And hey, by the way, just for a laugh, check out a great website that I love, www.oddtodd.com. O-D-D-T-O-D-D.com. Doesn't have anything to do with our Todd, but uh, if you're unemployed, you're going to definitely like the little Flash movies they have up there. All right, well, now let's get back to uh, .NET Rocks with Stephen Forte uh, talking about uh, design patterns and ASP.NET and all sorts of fun things right here on .NET Rocks. Don't you go away. The other thing you talked about was view state, and uh, this is this is a blessing and a curse. I, I don't know if you will agree with me. I will. Yeah. Um, view state is a, for the techie people out there, it's a hidden input tag that gets automatically put in um, forms that get generated by by ASP.NET controls. You don't have to write your own HTML forms to post back to the server. All that is done for you automatically. And this this hidden tag uh, contains a I think it's a base sixty four encoded That's serialization right. of all the non standard properties of the server side controls that generate the HTML. So it maintains the state of those controls through every round trip. So if you've got a calendar control and you have, you know, a list box control and you select an item in the list box and then you go round trip, uh, you know, then when it comes back, you want that item to be selected again. You don't want to have to maintain that yourself. And likewise, if you select a date on the calendar control, you want that to be maintained as the selected date. And you also want the list box to stay in its own state. So basically, it's for managing the state of the controls round trip. The problem with it is that uh, the concept of the back button doesn't bode well with a view state. Uh, Not at all. And if you hit the back button to go back a page, which was just, you know, one refresh ago, your view state may have completely changed and you may have lost some data or you may have gained some data you didn't want or or otherwise changed. Uh, the other problem, of course, is that it holds all the non-standard properties, which includes data in a list box and in a data grid and everything else. And if, 
you've got lots of grids and lots of data, you know, that, that can add up to, oh, I don't know, 20, 25, 30K or more. Sometimes um, a lot more than that. Sometimes a lot more than that. That's right. And, it, and it'll compound on itself and just get out of control. Now, you can turn it off. Uh, you don't have to use view state for everything. Some things you don't want to use it for. But uh, that well, means you just have to handle that state yourself. Well, view state is really great when you are um, not having to write code to remember what the user selected in a list box. Yeah. That is, And that's what it was intended for. And you just don't have to think about it. And that's another reason why we saved so many months in developer hours on this project because we didn't have to write any of that code and right. ASP have to loop through the select of a dropdown and all of that. Where we found view state not working for us was in our data grids. We used the server controls. Right. Which would, um, the data grid server control basically will um, spit out HTML in a table based upon tabular data from a, from a data set or a data reader. And by default, if you're just displaying a data grid onto a web page, and let's say it has 100 rows, and you're not doing anything with it, you have no need for the view state. Right. Because you're just going to go refresh that from the database next time the user runs that query. If you're doing paging and sorting, a lot of developers like to use, and this is where it gets very controversial, which is faster, a lot of developers will say, well, I'd rather load the information in the view state, sort it in memory, and then redisplay it, as opposed to doing another select statement out of my SQL server. Mm. And yeah, I, I am that. a big fan of making another round trip to the SQL server. Or if I was going to cache it, I'd cache the data set that it binds to it. Exactly. And... You cache the data set. And we, of course, we have a couple data sets that are just cached in our cache engine because we use a third-party charting control um, by Dundas. And... Um, we have a lot of charts that the users can interact with and change dates, and it's a, it's a great tool. And maybe mm. we can talk about it later, but what happens is a bunch of the charts have a lot of defaults. And those the data on some of the charts don't change every day. They change every Monday. So yeah. we actually keep a – we have a routine that we run that will take our data set and keep it in memory for a week. Yep. And so all the defaults do not make another round trip to the database. So, we, so you're we, sort of doing what the cache object does a little bit. We're using the caching API of ASP.NET, absolutely. Okay. And we're, we're basically making our cache dependent on a file. Right. Uh, and we change that. And when that file changes, it will rebind and redo the data, the data set. Oh, so you are using the cache. Okay. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, the cache is a great thing. It really is. And I'm a big fan of caching. And, um, you know, fragmented caching is the coolest byproduct of having a user control, you can cache sections of your page and not the entire page. Yeah, fragmented caching is awesome. And, uh, you know, I run into a lot of ASP developers that are not even aware uh, that that's an option. I, I don't know if you consider that something advanced in ASP.NET, but, you know, they just haven't picked up on it yet. I think it's at some point folks will not really know what a user control is. And once they get the user control and you say, hey, you can cache the user control but not the whole page, it's just like the light bulb goes off. You know, at conferences when I show this off, I see the light bulbs going off. So I don't right. think it's right. really advanced. I just think it's not, it's not as intuitive as it may be, you know, it's not as obvious to folks. People need an example. Well, you know, I'm running into developers that are aware that they can build user controls. They they just are not aware of you know using the attribute on it to uh, to set it for the output cache. Yeah, and I I find that um, this is one of the areas where .NET excels so much over the Java platform that I've become like a little mini evangelist of the caching API and particularly the fragmented caching because you can get some performance gains that are just absolutely ridiculous. Oh yeah, well you know consider you're getting like what over a million hits a day. Mm -hmm. So if you just cache for five seconds, you know. 
do the math. Do the math. That's about 7,000 requests that don't have to execute. They can come right out of uh, memory. For example, I was using a repeater control, and what we did is we used a repeater control for a, a navigation bar in our, um, in our application. And what we did is this navigation was database dynamically driven from the database. So by using fragmented caching, the data would only change a couple times a day. So by using the fragmented caching, what will happen is we saved hundreds and hundreds of round trips and re-renderings um, by using the cache object. So per you, second? or I mean, I would say hundreds probably per minute. But at the height of the day, we have a lot of business users from 9 to 5 is when we peak. I would say sometimes it could be hundreds per second. Wow. So, you know, the math definitely adds up. Is I'd rather that come from RAM on the web server and the cache engine than have to re-render with the ASP.NET engine, re-hit the SQL server. Probably the simplest way that you can scale a .NET application, an ASP.NET application. I, I've, I've gone around the world literally doing, um, you know, conference sessions and user groups and everything else. And what I tell developers is price, performance, and lines of code this is the number one thing you can do in an application to increase your performance and yep, scalability. That's what I tell them too. Well, hey, you know, Stephen, you mentioned design patterns earlier when you were talking about uh, the Zagat uh, project that you worked on. Uh, how drastic have the design patterns changed from going to a Windows DNA application or from one uh, to a, a .NET app? Surprisingly, the um, in in the previous projects I've worked on before, we've done some, you know, some pretty large projects before I was at Zagat when I was consulting. Surprisingly, the, the patterns, you know, some of the core patterns you use, like the factory pattern and the singleton pattern, have not really changed all that much. It's amazing. Is, you know, the architecture is architecture, meaning, meaning .NET or DNA or even J2EE for that matter. You know, the, the underlying architecture is your architecture, but those design patterns really have stood the test of time. Have, have you found that yourself? Yeah, that, that's one of the reasons I wanted to ask you the same question. Uh, you know, if you're creating a facade layer of some sort for your data. Uh, you yeah, know, I mean, exactly what we were doing, you know, and, you know, get the loose coupling with some of the other p patterns. And what, what do you mean by a, uh, what, what exactly did you do for a facade layer? This is a, one of my, um, peeves is that people think that they should be taking data out of a data set or a data reader and going into a, you know, a specific dummy set of dumb classes that just represent the fields of the, of the data instead of just well, using the data set. That's, I'm really glad you bring that up because that's one of my peeves too. And um, what's interesting about that is I am not a fan of these generic classes. And then you get a collection class right. of that class. I walked into a project as a consultant, and it was a disaster because they had a collection class to fill a bunch of objects of customers. So they had customer and customer's collection class right. to fill a list box. Right. I mean, it took a day of coding effort where they basically could have solved the problem by passing back. At that point, it was RDO. Right, just to be object-oriented. Exactly. Sometimes they take the object-oriented pill and take it a little too seriously. Yes. And what usually happens with design patterns is people read the Gang of Fours book. I mean, I'm looking at it right now on my shelf. It's, you know, a classic. Right. And they read the book, and they do everything all wrong for about a year. Right. And then they come back and realize it. And I, I was guilty of it. I, yeah, I was going to say, I did that too, you know. I, I fell into the trap myself. I fell into the trap, but slightly different. My trap is an interesting one to chat about. Is I thought I was a genius at the time, and I really was just being stupid. Is I said... <laughs> 
hmm, I'll make my object so generic that um, I can change data access methodologies midway through the project, right. and I will just spit back, this is when XML was brand new, I, I drank the Kool-Aid, I'll just spit back XML. <laughs> well, besides the fact that XSLT was just slow and I don't know if anybody, if, I don't know if the listener heard that little comment you just made, but that was brilliant. Which I drank one? the Kool-Aid. I drank yeah. the Kool-Aid, you got it. <laughs> XML is good. XML is good. <laughs> drink the Kool-Aid. I drank the Some XML of our younger and... listeners won't understand that reference, but that's okay. <laughs> Just look up Jonestown in the encyclopedia. Yeah, that's it. And um, so I was once speaking at a conference in, in the Netherlands, and I had to explain all of Jonestown to them because I made the Kool-Aid remark, and someone asked me what it meant. Oh, so no. It was, and I had to go through the whole story and it, you know it was a good 10 minute I well, mean, that it was, was a world little... event though that wasn't just an American thing that happened in Guyana it happened in Guyana but I mean they were young and didn't really you know the story was pertinent more in the United States than anywhere else well he was American yeah because so. they were our psychos yeah. um, but you know I, I drank the X back to our yeah, know, okay, I'm sorry Kool-Aid I drank the Kool-Aid and with my design patterns I designed my application it's probably about like 1998 when I really started getting on the design pattern bandwagon I started spitting back XML and I started with arrays in the early days yeah I realized I never change my data access methodology. <laughs> you know, I mean, I change it when I need to go from eight, you know, DAO to RDO to ADO to .NET, but that's years in right. between. So right. I basically, I mean, applications I've been designing now is I'll, I will have my class basically be a, you know, data set factory or, or data reader factory and, and that encapsulate my data in a data set. I mean, in right. essence, Microsoft gave us that object. It's called the data set. That's what it's for. Yeah. You know, th- there's no connection with a data set. I, when I teach um, at conferences about ADO.net, I have the whole class, you know, a thousand people repeat after me. There's no connection associated That's with right. the data set. And, you know, when you say it's disconnected, that could even imply that it was connected at one point. <laughs> it was exactly. Never- this was, it was born in life disconnected and it will always be disconnected. It has no properties, connection, or command, or anything. That's right. It's free. It escapes. And what I always tell people, that's why there's no SQL client dot SQL data set. Right. That's why there's no OLADB client or Oracle client dot data set. That's why it's, you know, the data dot right. data set. Yeah. So, so that's where we kind of use the um, the patterns. And one other thing um, to talk about design patterns is I speak at this conference in the Netherlands. It's a hoot. There's a bunch of folks there. There's a Fox Pro track. There's a Visual Objects track. There's a .NET track. There's a this track. And that I means like 100 different technologies. And yeah. it's funny because I'll go sit into a Delphi, uh, or they call it Delphi over there. I'll sit in on a Delphi track just to kind of see what's going on. And I'll sit in on a Fox Pro track just for kind of nostalgia, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and um, they're, they're talking about design patterns in those sessions, too. And right. they're using the same design patterns I'm using in .NET. So design patterns are definitely good to know. And design patterns, you know, if you're one of those programmers who just sits down, has a blank slate, and write, generates code, you're probably using them anyway. You just don't know you are. You just don't know mm-hmm. you are. Right, so it's a good idea to uh, see what everybody else is doing. I can definitely say that if there's folks out there that are saying, oh, I've got to research this design pattern stuff, um, right. it can be a little intimidating when yeah. you first start. So make sure you've sure. mastered the object-oriented and the benefits of using object-oriented code um, before you actually tackle the design patterns. Right, there are a couple of brothers that wrote uh, a design pattern book for .NET. Uh, is it Sunblad and Sunblad, Carl? Yeah, Pear and Stan Sunblad. Pear and we're Stan we're Sunblad. definitely going to get them on. Oh, yeah, guests. we got to get them on. Uh, I haven't read their book yet, but uh, I've heard it's awesome. I read their uh, DNA book, which had more to do with common sense than it did with DNA, but uh, it was just a brilliant book and... and uh, I have, I have a lot of respect for those guys. 
Right, in the uh, the Gang of Four book that Stephen mentioned earlier, Eric Gamma is the only author that I can ever remember from that book. But uh, you know that that's not the kind of book that you would you would really sit down and read and just immediately start coding. Uh, you know, to me, it's more of a thought provoking book where uh, you know you'll read it and you'll start thinking, oh yeah, that's the way something works in Com that follows this particular design pattern. Yeah, exactly. The, the light bulb goes off over your head, and you're like, "Oh, that's how they do it." Right. Yeah. But I think you're actually hit on a good point. When I read that book um, a couple of years ago, I was like an ADO monkey at the time. You know, I was really making my living writing com objects and you know VB and doing a lot of work with ADO. It's probably about like you know in the late '90s, and I remember reading one of the patterns. I forget if it might have been the Singleton pattern. I remember thinking, this is how they did that, meaning how the Microsoft developers did something in ADO, you know, themselves, but under the cover. So it really mm. was thought-provoking. You're absolutely correct in your um, discussion there. In your um, either one of your applications or projects that you worked on, did you ever come across the need to use the interop layer? Um, yeah. Um, if you remember back to the um, application I was speaking about at Zagat, the Windows form, the early adopter mm-hmm. um, .NET app that we built, um, we had some core, I would say, um, business logic that was sitting around in um, COM, in you know VB6, which is where we called it our legacy application, which right. was pieced together over the years. And we really didn't have the time. I mean, this is, you know, now I mean, you remember what happened, you know, the, lay- the layoffs of the, you know, dot-com bus right. and everything. We didn't have the time to really write that over in .NET. And I couldn't go in front of management and say, I need another X developer month to do this, this, and this. So I said, hey, let's try out the com interop. And um, we used com interop, and we were just so surprised how well it worked. Um, to the point where we were testing, our .NET apps were exposed to our VB6 project, which was amazing. Hmm. Um so we, we did some research with Com Interop and uh, we went with it and uh, the performance was um, was just fine. We um, you know when we put it in front of users, it was there was no performance degradation whatsoever. You know in a lab when we pounded on this thing with you know Windrunner or something, obviously there was a you know a slight tiny lag, but we're talking about milliseconds. Yeah, here. from what I understand, there's about an overhead of thirty thirty five instructions processor instructions per call plus marshalling overhead. And that's really not much in the grand scheme of things. That, you know, that brings me to a good point, um, Stephen, which uh, I'm constantly getting people asking me about performance as if it was, the year was 1984, you know, or 1989. Okay. Um, I don't think people have realized that the sheer magnitude of improvement of processor speed that we've had just in the last five years, just quantum leaps ahead you know, when VB4 came out, it wasn't quite up to snuff the processor speed. You know, processor speed wasn't quite there to handle Especially VB4. 32-bit, yeah. Right, the 32-bit jump. And it really took a little bit of, uh, to get over that hump. And uh, people were then concerned about squeezing every ounce of performance out of it. You know, how much overhead does it... Co- and I remember, like, uh, Scott Swanson at Microsoft doing having the most popular VBit sessions. It was an optimizing VB. And it was like, get a variable and put, pull the property value into the variable and then use the variable if you're going to use it, you know, use with, for example. Um, you know, because we can share, shave a few milliseconds off and a few milliseconds here. And, you know, so people naturally bring that same sort of skepticism forward and that same yardstick with .NET. But now it's like, you know, well, we didn't want to use interop because of the performance degradation. I'm like, you know what? 
or C sharp but in VB. That's a great one, you know, because VB has to make a call into the VB library, whereas C sharp doesn't. It's not going to make your form load any faster when you push the button, people. Exactly. We're talking about a millisecond or two tops Top, here. And a millisecond, I mean, human brain just can't process yeah, I mean, I what mean, we're talking about here. When you were talking about performance differences between, you know, this and that, and, you know, generally it's just shut up. You know? Carl, <laughs> always the diplomat. No, you know? Yeah, okay, Carl, I can see performance Carl, differences. Carl, you know, is sensitive to others' feelings. Right. <laughs> I can see performance differences between web services and remoting. Those are significant. You're, gonna, you're talking like seconds. Right. We're talking about seconds here. But, you know, using interop or, you and know. What I, what I get on a rant is when developers, I mean, I've made my living over the last five years or so managing large development teams. And, um... You know, I'll get a developer coming up to me, and they'll have all this code that I barely understand because they've done exactly what you said. You know, they've moved the properties into a variable and this and that because they can save a millisecond. Right, and they've spent more time. And I just keep saying, stop the madness. It's true. I mean, We don't need to do that anymore. You know, the funny thing about it is, so the DBA doesn't put an index on a particular column and a stored procedure is slow, so developer thinks they have to spend a day changing, you know, variables from int 32 to int 64 oh, or whatever to squeeze an extra nanomillisecond <laughs> when all we had to do was put, which, when all we had to do was put a, a friggin' index on a field and we have, boom, you know, in, right. you know sub-second response time. Right, it's oh, true. That, that reminds me, i got to tell you this. I had a student recently that was telling me how slow one of their .NET apps uh, was performing. And, you know, they, we were talking about different decisions they'd made in the coding of it, and it all, it all sounded good. So I asked them, can you bring it in and let me take a look at it? And when they brought it in and, uh, you know, we ran it, I, I noticed that, uh, the debug file was still out there, and the student had put into production a debug release rather than the release version of the code. And uh, I had not really thought about how bad uh, that would affect performance, but... Especially in a web app. Right, it's a web app. It was dramatic. Yep. Yeah, because the web app has the whole remote debugging aspect to it, so that, with that file that you would attach to. Yeah, and that can, that can cause big, big problems, like hang problems, not just... Not just yeah. uh, I know, I told him, I said, have you, have you noticed that little drop-down where it's got release and debug up there? And he's like, no, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, I've <laughs> made that mistake before beta 2, so... I mean, you know, I think Microsoft should do the world a service, and I think that's a very common problem. And I think when you hit the little copy project button in Visual Studio, it should, and you're tagged as debug, it should kind of flag like a little message box. Are you sure you really want to do this? <laughs> yeah, a klaxon should go off. Right, and then if you say yes, another box should pop up. Say, are you really, really, really sure? Because you know, web apps are our public thing. You know, web apps are our face to the world. Right, so yeah. a, a, a failing .NET app out there on the internet is bad PR for the platform because it's such a great platform. It's just asking for trouble to exactly. put that out there. Exactly. So you've done a bit of work with the ASP.NET Data Grid, have you not? Uh, yeah, we. Um, I, I've I've actually became a real big fan of the Data Grid when um, you know when Beta Two rolled out of .NET, and we were we were really working it to get on the Windows forums. But, um, you know, speaking at a lot of the conferences, they said, hey, can you start researching some of the things? And I started looking at the data grid, and I really immediately looked at the sorting features and the paging aspect of it Mm -hmm. and the programmatic access to getting, you know, when the data gets bound, you can dynamically do different things. 
and um, the in-place editing, you know, the data grid. And, it, you know, at the end of the day, we're just sending the client HTML. And yeah, that's what's right. amazing about this thing is two lines of code, okay? You know, data grid dot data source equals, you know, the name of your data reader, your data set. You know, data grid dot data bind. Two lines of code can get you a very complex, well-formatted HTML table on the client, which would have taken significant oh, amount of code serious, in ASP Classic. Hey, you know, speaking of uh, data grids, uh, Stephen, have you heard of the data grid girl? Um, yes, I have, actually. I've heard of the data grid girl. I went to her website, datagrid.com. I was researching something on the data, on the repeater control and did a Google search, and that's actually how I found her because, um, you know, I was, I was basically, as all of you probably know, if you go to www.google.com backslash Microsoft.htm and just type in a line of code, you'll get a, a, an answer faster than anywhere else in the world, including msdn.com. And cool. So that brought you to her site? I think I did, like, you know, item data. I don't know. I was, I was doing something. And... Um, because the data grid had a, an exact same property, um, I actually stumbled across her website. I said, this will be interesting. Well, it just so happens she's on the line with us. Wow, that's exciting. I hey, want to meet the data grid girl. <laughs> hey, data grid girl. Hi what, there. So what's your real name? Marcy Rubillard. Hi, Marcy. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, www.datagridgirl.com is your site, right? That's right. And this is this is really a cool site. I, w- <laughs> I was pretty blown away. It's a very girly girl site. Yeah, and it's and it's, but it's, it's very pink. yeah. It's done in pink and in a very cool font. That sort of reminded me of like uh, you know Polly Pockets or something like that. <laughs> but it's all about the data grid. That's and, right. And it's got some really good stuff on there. How well, did- when I heard the name Data Grid Girl, I thought superhero. You know, here are people that are in despair, and you come to their rescue. So actually, someone emailed me the other day and asked me if I write my data grid code wearing a cape. <laughs> and do you? No. Just <laughs> I said yes, because it sounded funny. <laughs> a pink cape and a mask. Where did you come up with this idea? Well, I don't know. It kind of came to me last year. I was at a conference and talking with some other people, and I really wanted an area to specialize in. And so I was just trying to come up with something in .NET. I'd only played around with the betas, and... um I ended up deciding on the data grid, and I thought it would be a good idea to focus on it. It's one of the few things that I'd worked with and really thought was really neat about ASP.NET, and decided to develop a website devoted to it. Cool. And it's my uh, favorite server control. It is. I mean, it's the most powerful server control. It has the most features and a lot of stuff built in. And you have uh, developed a, a bit of a, uh, a bit of a database of code and, and tips and, and yep. resources. And articles. Yeah. Give us a few examples of some of the stuff we'll see on your site. Um, the part that I like the most right now is my frequently asked questions section. I've, I, I spend a lot of time answering questions on the ASP.NET forums and the news groups and a couple of different listservs. Now you're actually an, uh, an MVP for uh, ASP with Microsoft, aren't you? That's right. I am a Microsoft MVP. And those are the most valuable players or of the forums? I think the, call it most forums. valuable professionals. Most valuable professionals, uh, the people who answer a lot of questions people on answer the a lot of questions. news groups. Your life will change by being an MVP. Random things will come in the mail to your house. Yeah, that's, that is true. I got a watch <laughs> once. I got a, a notepad once, a pen. Lots, mm. of great, lots of great toys. Yeah, I got the watch this year. I the watch is cool. other things about Swiss Army knives. And oh, the Swiss Army knife is cool, too. But my watch wasn't pink, so I was kind of disappointed. I have to tell you, a quick story is pink. That would be, see, if they would have went to your website, they would have done their homework. They've been to my website. I know my MVP lead was a definite fan of the site. 
Well, I live in New York City, and I got the watch, and they they shipped it from Redmond, and they went in and switched the time to New York City time before they shipped me the watch. And I thought that really, that was No, special. I think That's mine class. was on my local time zone, See? too, and I just thought it was a coincidence. Hey, I'm online at msdn.microsoft.com slash msdnmag, and I'm looking at a preview of the May issue where Dino Esposito has an article on real-world XML where he the, the approach he's using is, is uh, using XML readers and writers in the framework, which are sort of a unique uh, somewhere between the power of the XML DOM and the simplicity of SACS. You have these readers and writers which can accomplish some amazing things uh, with little code. Um, and he goes into node readers and dealing with text and strings and fragments validating readers, all sorts of great stuff. Go check it out. And you know, it's my favorite development magazine, MSDN Magazine. If you don't have a subscription, you're crazy. Well, anyway, let's get back to our conversation with the Data Grid Girl uh, and Stephen Forte right here on .NET Rocks. Hey, listen, I want to thank you very much for all your support. And tell a friend about our show, won't you? I'd sure appreciate it. All right, let's get back to the, to the fun. Stick around. So how long have you been working with um, .NET, and, and what kinds of projects have you done? And, and uh, tell us about your programming experience. Well, I've been working with .NET for about almost two years, um, off and on. Early stuff, just playing with the betas, and then now I finally get to do it professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been programming for six, for six and a half years total, professionally, and cool. most of that was classic AST and VB, and then .NET in the last couple of years. Wow, great. So what are some of the cool things you've done with the data grid? Oh, gosh, I do lots of things with the data grid. Um, a lot of times when I'm answering questions on the list or on the news groups, I I just build little snippets, so I have just a huge collection of samples. Um, lately, I've been doing a lot with ViewState. Um, there's a lot of things you can do still with the data grid when ViewState's disabled, which is really helpful for speeding up your page. Right. So I've been playing around a lot with that and trying to get things, making sure you have to do some special tricks to get all the events to work in the data grid without ViewState. Yeah. I've been working a lot with that lately. Yeah, that's true. I think a lot of people need to get used to the fact that the data events happen in the data table, not the data grid. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And uh, getting yeah, used to that. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion. People don't understand the difference between a data set and a data table and a data reader and a data right. grid. Because they all start with data for crying yeah, out loud. Yeah, why'd they do that? <laughs> confusing. If Microsoft thought they were helping us. <laughs> Take a data this and put it into a data that and you get a data the other thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very cool. So, so I guess uh, we heard about you from Chris and Ari's cheap ass show. Oh yeah, VBTV. VBTV. Yeah, that's yep. right. And uh, so it's been going pretty well for you. How, what's your hit count like? Um, I think I get about ten thousand hits a week now. Wow. It, I just put the site up last April, and I I think I had about hundred hits that month, and it's it's really grown over time. And just in the last two or three months is when the hits have really started taking off. Very cool. It shows the popularity of the data grid besides, you know, the popularity of your site. It really is an amazingly popular control. Like, if you look at the ASP.NET forums, for example, just the number of questions on data grids is, is a huge percentage of the questions on the site. So I got a question for you. Yeah. What's up with e.item.cells, uh, parentheses, 7, dot, uh, 
controls dot zero all C type to a text box dot text <laughs> to get the value. Yeah, what were they thinking? I mean, come on. Well, if you're if you're using template comms and you name your controls, you can you can skip some of that with just using find control. Find control, but right? If you're using bound columns, then that's what you got to do. Yeah, I, it's not pretty, but. In fact, most of the most of the people that I know who do ASP.NET say they use nothing but template columns. Yeah, I use them a lot. There's no other way to travel. Yeah. Uh, so, Marcy, are you doing a lot of consulting work, or are you doing any training? Uh, what kind of stuff do you do as Data Grid Girl? I'm doing some consulting. Um, I have a Rent Data Grid Girl page on my site, and that that gets me a little bit of traffic for consulting work that I do on the side, and I'm always looking for more. Right. So where can people uh, contact you? Through my website, datagridgirl.com. My email address is listed on there, but I'll give it to you as well. It's marcy at datagridgirl.com, spelled M-A-R-C-I-E. Cool. So what's next for your site? Oh, gosh, lots of things. I'm, I'm going to add, well, the latest thing I've just added is a book section. I'm reviewing the Data Grid chapters and all the different .NET books that I have. Oh, cool. And I just put that up recently. And the next thing I'm going to do is a how-to section. Kind of like my frequently asked questions, but a little bit longer. The, the facts are more like a paragraph answer. These would be like a page and answer, things that take a little bit longer to, to address. What's your number one hottest tip for somebody using the data grid? Hottest tip? Let me think about that. Um, probably, probably the most common mistake that people do, and this is true not just for data grid work also, but just forgetting to check for postback and page load. Yeah. And that can cause just... It's it's not real obvious the problems that it causes. <clears throat> it's true. You can spend hours trying to debug, and it's just and it's just that one line that you need, and that's one of the facts I have on my fact page. Right. Yeah, that's when I tell tell people that in class. I said, "Look, you're going to forget this." Yeah. <laughs> it's the easiest thing to forget. I know I did right. it myself several times when I was starting out. Right. Now it finally becomes a force of habit, but it takes some time. You know, the problem that I still have is I make a nice generic function that fills my data grid. You know, I call it usually the fill grid method. And then I forget to call it on page load or post back. And then I'm like yeah. cursing Microsoft. How come my grid isn't working? Yeah. That's my number one tip. Yeah, I see that question a lot. All right. Eat your Wheaties in the morning. <laughs> what? <laughs> Eat your Wheaties in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, are we going to see you at TechEd? I hope so. Great. I haven't signed up yet, but I'm, I'm hoping to go. Right, TechEd's going to be in Dallas this year, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's going to be a and great show. Yeah, that, that's a, we, we didn't actually say where you're from. You're, uh, you're in Texas. I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. I see our close drive. Yeah, oh yeah, TechEd's just across town. Cool. Well, we're, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, Stephen is in charge of the regional director party and, huh? uh, getting together a band. Oh, we're, really? We're musicians, uh, in our other lives. And yeah. I drafted gonna... Carl to, uh, Lead the jam session. So we're going to have sort of a jam session. I don't know. Can non-RDs get into this party? I, I, we could arrange Data Grid Girl to get it in. Absolutely. We'll give you a free pass. Does that count for anything? What's that? MVP, MVP counts for something. Oh, sure. Cool. Definitely does. Well, that'd be fun. Sure. So we'll keep an eye out for you. Well, thanks. Thanks for calling. And uh, keep rocking. That's a great site. All right. Take care. Have a great night. You too. So, uh... Stephen, before we uh, say goodbye here, do um, you have any favorite tools, absolute must-have tools in your tool chest for uh, developers, .NET developers in particular? I have, a, I have a couple tools. Some fall in the category of development um, you know, controls, or, and some of them are just straight tools. The first is it's most 
basic form is a, a control a, a tool called Ultra Edit 32. Ooh. And Ultra Edit 32 sounds very boring when you first um, hear about it. It is a text editor, and it is a more advanced Notepad or WordPad, and it's fully Unicode and and everything else. And it's also a hex editor. But what's great about Ultra Edit 32, besides having a most recently used menu, um, which Notepad lacks, it gives you the ability to do um, super fast find and replace on huge log files. And you don't have to even open the files. You can point your find and replace to a directory and say, do for every .txt file in this directory, including or excluding subdirectory. So I've used it to do some find and replace in, you know, three gigabyte log files, you know, sitting on a server somewhere. TextPad does that too. Um, it much faster than TextPad. So and you've used them both. Yeah, I've I've definitely used both. And what I find really great about um, Ultra Edit is it's actually a little mini IDE. You can load some little dictionaries and some little sam- and some little files into Ultra Edit. And when you when you right click and open up a you know a .cs page or open up an XML page, it'll even give you some IntelliSense on um, what you're doing. Oh, wow, it does IntelliSense. That's cool. And it has a dictionary, but I've yet to figure out how to get the spell check to work. But I, I mean, not because, basically because I haven't needed it, because some people are text fanatics. I mean, I, I've drank the Kool-Aid, and um, I use Microsoft <laughs> Word for pretty much all of that type of stuff from right. writing and, and stuff. But you can actually load in dictionaries, and it's, you know, it's also localized, so you can load in you know, different dictionaries dynamically. So UltraEdit is my all-time favorite tool. I talk about it all the time. Well, I wish I'd taken a look at that. Uh, I, I've often said that TextPad was my uh, ASP development tool. Well, I, I'm going to have to check it out because I am a TextPad uh, zealot. So because UltraEdit gives you color coding. When you the open newer versions code. of TextPad do too. Yeah, te- TextPad does that too. Yeah, I, yeah, I haven't I, I haven't played with TextPad in a good year or two. Yeah, from what you've mentioned, uh, you know, probably speed uh, with the multi-file replace on a large file. Is uh is the only thing I think you've mentioned so far. TextPad doesn't do uh, IntelliSense with no, it um, doesn't a .dot net language. Yeah, you can definitely get IntelliSense, and um, I'm a big fan also of um, XML Spy. But to kind of oh, yeah. bring, I mean, which I won't really talk about because most people know about it. But well, um, there's a lot that don't. That's true. I think you should give a little okay. Well, little I mean, description. I think the, I mean XML Spy is an XML IDE, and the two coolest things that I find about XML Spy are. You know, you could be working with a um, XSLT. Now, there's other tools that do this now, but at the time when it first came out, you could be working with an XSLT file, and you have multiple ones in a raw XML document. Then you can dynamically say, apply this XSLT, and it gives you a preview window. And just to kind of see the results of your effort right there immediately, instead of having to kind of go in and make an HTML page that merged them all together or something, or do a transform node, um, was fabulous. The other is the ability to import things in a really, I mean, a lot of things will do this, import and export as XML, but it does a fabulous job of it. It can read MDB files, it can read ODBC files, you know, Word documents, and you know, it really does intelligent element mapping. Uh, but one thing about XML Spy is XML Spy, like anything else, will fall over when you try to open, let's say, something ridiculous like a 200 megabyte XML file. Right. Open up an Ultra Edit 32, it takes like two seconds. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna continue plugging Ultra Edit 32. Cool. And you, mess, you mentioned you used the Dundas charting controls. How did yeah, that work out? At Corzin, we, um, we looked at the chart FX. We looked at all the third-party chart controls and things that we could have done kind of homegrown with some Microsoft stuff and the Office web components. And we settled on the Dundas chart control. We really, um, it's, you know, company's name is Dundas. And 
we really had great success with it. And they're also a good company that backs their product. Uh, you know, we've, you know, went back for some support and, you know, looking at different issues. And the chart itself is a pleasure to use. It's, you know, with all chart controls, there's tons of chart types and properties and methods that are hard to figure out. And Dundas, I guess it's just between the, the good documentation and intuitive, you know, intuitive properties that you can actually really easy, easily use the advanced charts. Because a lot of times a chart company will sell you on a, you know, these great financial bubble charts, but you can never code them. You know, right. you just want to, you just want to do some data binding. And, right. And, you know, part of that is just intelligence works. Sometimes you buy these third-party controls and the intelligence doesn't work right. So right, and there's no sample. That works out real good. Yep. So you evaluated ChartFX? Uh, yeah, I like ChartFX a lot. Don't get me wrong. Um, one of the reasons we chose Dundas is they were ready for .NET before ChartFX. And then um, one of the other reasons was, as I said, the real ease, ease of use of getting some of their advanced features just done. You're just labeling and cu- custom labeling and that type of stuff, hmm. which is... Do they make a Windows Forms version as yeah, well? They they make them all pretty much. Yeah, there's a wow. Windows version. There's a ASP Classic version. Cool. Well, we'll put a link. Cool. We got to give it a look. Yeah, we'll yeah, put a link to that site up. Uh, on and there's the... two nice features about it. It could do a, what I find nice is it does a it can do a round robin GIF creation on the server, or it can do binary streaming down to the client, which is actually cool. which is really neat. Very cool. It is pretty neat, and um, it's actually another. Um, something I use called Star Team. It used to be made by a company called Starbase, but now it's made by, um, now it's actually, they were purchased by Borland. And the Star Team is a combination um, issue tracking system and source control. And um, we've, mm. you have teams over four or five people, and then you also have the business folks too. It's a great tool. Uh, wow. It can, get, it can get a little pricey, but what we, re- what we really like about it is developers will um, be assigned, you know, there's automatic routing if you want, or you can do it manually, but developers' issues will get entered by the QA folks. And it's it will a get polite word to, for bugs, right? Exactly. It'll get assigned <laughs> to a developer, and it's all coded and integrated. Developer will then check out the code from Star Team, work on it in Visual Studio, check it back in, and then something called a build label will pop up. And they will apply a label to this particular build of their code, and one of the things that you can require them is say, which star team issues, numbers, did you, you know, select from the box, you know, which ones did you close out? So the next morning when the build manager does a build, you have a really automated build report. And then, of course, there's bug reports and all that type of stuff. But the build report is indispensable with large projects because one of the things that you'll be doing is um, you'll be looking at the build report and said, wait a second, we closed that bug and this developer on their build label said they did. And, you know, so the build is broken or et cetera, et cetera. So it's indispensable tool for larger projects. Did you see the uh, the uh, rants that are going on in the RD list right now about source uh, source safe and version control software and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think one of the RDs um, put it as Microsoft is doing the world a disservice by making source safe free. Yeah. Because source safe is um, a less than desirable product, and they don't um, even use it for more than twenty people. Oh, you know? uh, that I wouldn't use it for more than four or five people. Yeah. It, it will, I'll, I will be the first to say that I do not agree with Bill Vaughn. That I am a fan of Jet. Um, you know, oh, really? Full, I mean, I'll give you a full disclosure. I mean, I used to work with the Jet team as a consul- as a contractor. So okay. I mean, but you know, Jet is a good little desktop app. It's a it, you know, I mean, it's a great little tool. You know, DAO and Jet were the were the bomb in its time, and the problem is Jet is not a you know something that's for mission critical apps, nor not a client something server for thing you know large work groups. And SourceSafe still uses Jet to sort you know. So if you if you have fears of access databases corrupting, Jet databases corrupting, 
and you're storing all your source code in source safe <laughs> problems exactly you've you have some ill recoverable Scott problems. Guthrie at uh, Dev Connections last year was on a Q&A panel and you know he's one of the two guys that invented ASP.NET he and Mark uh, Anders well anyway uh, the question was posed to him what does Microsoft use for source control and he says they use a, a combination of source safe for projects where there's less than 20 people involved they use slime SLM interesting and they also use uh, source gear for big projects Interesting. Well, I know definitely they use SourceSafe. Uh, I I was just out there working on a, a courseware project two weeks ago, and everything for the courseware project was stored in SourceSafe. Yeah. So hmm. I, you know, I think part of the problem is, um, you know, Microsoft does eat their own dog food, but here's an, here's a case where they're not fully eating their dog food. <laughs> and the dog your food is seven years old. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I've always said, you know, the joke is, you know, what are the, you know, the newest version of Visual Source Safe? What has it done? Well, it's 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 changed the letter after its um, it's changed the letter after its name, right? You know, six O C. Well, that was a that was a product they bought, wasn't it? I have no idea the history behind it. Yeah, you know, I think it was uh, a purchase from another company. So they probably don't know enough about the code to make it work right. You're, you're probably <laughs> probably right in that regard. <laughs> I so mean, uh, Star Team, the one you mentioned that you know you've had good success with over twenty developers, obviously with that. Yeah, I mean I've had I mean I had great success with small smaller teams as well on Star Team. It's not for you know someone like Data Grid Girl who has a obviously a very small consulting shop. It's probably her and one or two folks. But it's yeah. if you're working on projects of really more than two people touching the code, um, if you know you could probably get away with source safe. But if you if you if you're working on a project where you have you know organized um, version control and organized issue tracking where the business folks need those type of reports. You know, don't use the world's largest issue tracking system, which is Microsoft Excel. Um, you know, something like Star Team integrates so well with Visual Studio and integrates so well on the business side, you know, with taking the, um, you know, the issue management tracking. Cool. Now you said it gets kind of expensive. Uh... It definitely does. And, um, I'm not sure how that will change for the better or for the worse with Portland. But it is not um, cheap, and that's where the you know by making source safe free, you're unfortunately Microsoft is creating this expectation that source control software should be cheap or free or relatively inexpensive. And you know, quite frankly, hey, you know, I'm I'm out there to save money, but I also will save money if my developers aren't wrestling with source safe and right. you know going around and it doesn't work well over VPN. So you know, Star Team works just flawlessly over VPN and remote access. So. Mm. Yeah. It's definitely a tool to check out. It's, you know, for the larger, you know, obviously it's it's really great in a corporate environment. It's, you know, small consulting shops, it may be cost prohibitive, but I have no idea where Borland, where Borland's going to go with that. All right. Well, uh, listen, we're about out of time. Is there any, any last minute wisdom you want to impart to the listening audience? Uh, I guess just um, if you're using the data grin, uh, try turning off view state and see what happens. <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> definitely good advice. And it's, and it's okay to uh, return a data set to your client application. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what it's for. It's yeah. for traveling. It is for traveling. It's for traveling across the Internet through layers uh, all the way up and back. Hopefully one day we can pass it on into the database. Well, that's another, that's another show. You got it. All right. Well, we'll talk to you later, Stephen. Thanks for calling and being a guest, and uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. It's been great, Stephen. Thanks so much. Okay, take care. Have a good night. Good night. Take good care. Night. Bye. Bye.